There are families who play music together. I know this because my family is one of those families. Oh, give me lamplots of lamp under stars, guys. And there are people who get up at funerals and play music. I know this because my family are those people. We are a family funeral band. But we didn't just fall into it. We were nudged by one person. Well, the thing with the memorial is that that's it. There's, you're not going to have another one. I mean, you can, you can blow a birthday party or <laughs> you can even blow a wedding. Many, many people come back and get married again. <laughs> my dad. And to understand who my dad is, picture a man carrying around a briefcase full of harmonicas. He's wearing a fedora hat, maybe a Hawaiian t-shirt. He's got tivas on his feet. He'd drive me to guitar practice every Wednesday. He called me his house band. If you're not 15 minutes early, you're late. And so that, that uh, I would actually probably show up half an hour early, or e- even if it was a little event. Take my word for it. I began to resent that, in general. But I was a teenager, and that faded with time. I honestly don't hold it against him. At this point, I even find it endearing. Matter of fact, I'm glad you we got into that area. I have to make a note to alert that that crew of the dates. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Which is coming up. Well, coming up in April. But I still wonder how did it all start? I know my dad has always loved music and performing, but why funerals? Where did that come from? So I dug up the old audio cassettes. My dad recorded all the funerals. I went back to the most important deaths, looking for any clues I could find to answer those questions. This is Manish. I'm Jesse Rhodes. How did we ever get started doing this? My mom, the singer. So, the first one I remember doing was um, Dad's cousin, Johnny's. It all begins with Johnny. Johnny is my dad's older cousin, and they were close growing up. Sometimes he would stay, when he stayed with us, sometimes he, even though he was old, a couple of years older than me, I always felt honored if he stayed in my room. Um, his mom was a daughter of a military officer, I guess. Or, um, came from a pretty verbally, at least verbally, if not physically abusive background herself. And kind of, uh, I mean, I'm not sure how much of this I want to put on tape. There were rumors that Johnny's mom threw him against the walls and whipped him with belts. He had a broken leg when he was one years old. And although there's no evidence that this is because of abuse, it raised a few eyebrows. In any case. He, he got in trouble with drugs and, went, and SME and heroin in, in college. 
But I saw a guy dumpster diving uh, for food, and I took a closer look, and it was my cousin Johnny. Must have been shortly after, you were pretty little, shortly after we had moved in, because the studio was still not finished off. And he stayed, he says, I'll stay out there, you know, and he stayed out there for a while. And then, <clears throat> I think alcohol started disappearing in the house. And I had just come out of a relationship where I was dealing with somebody like that, and I just triggered off things for me. And so I think at some point, Dad just said to him, I don't know, giving him sort of a, a time limit, you know. You know, he struggled with it for years and years, and then he kind of got himself off it for a short period of time, and he was with this group, some Christian Bible group, he felt like he maybe really got off it with the support of this group, and then he had a lapse and just became really despondent, like, I'll never, ever get off this, and decided he didn't want to live anymore. Uh, right around his 50th birthday... He went up to, I think it was Big Sur, which is one of his favorite places, and he got a sleeping bag and was sleeping outside the stars, with the stars, and he took something and put a plastic bag over his head, like some sort of barbiturate or something, and then put a plastic bag over his head, and it just drifted off. It was hard for Dad. We might have been out in his studio when he told me. You know, he didn't want me to really do too much with him, hugging him or consoling him. He just needed to have that private moment to cry. We asked about a memorial and found out that the family wasn't planning to have any memorial for him. As a matter of fact, the mother accused Johnny of taking his own life just to get back at her. You know, this kind of mean-spiritedness. And um, we decided we were going to go ahead and do this memorial for us. Well, I guess I'm the MC, so... I'm really glad to see so many of my cousins together here. Chat, rap, talk, spinning the yarn, that was Johnny's gift, wasn't it? Gift of the gab. So creative in that department that sometimes he believed more of his own gab than perhaps he should have. But heck, I was one of his fans, one of his believers who still held out for that big miracle, which sometimes somewhere in his middle life Old Cousin John was going to pull off. Pull off and get himself together, really together. Like he once was, like he was always gabbing about he would be again. Johnny's Bible group came and spoke on his behalf. His girlfriend from high school came. My grandmother read a poem. And my dad made a tape so that family members could listen later.
Do you remember what song we sang at, at his memorial, at Johnny's memorial? Hobo's Lullaby. I think it was Dad. Maybe you too, but I know that was a song that I heard a lot as a lullaby going mm -hmm. to sleep. Yeah. Up in, Actually, up until the memorial. Let the town drift slowly. Yeah, it seemed a very appropriate song for him. And he was on the road a lot and he was camping in backyards or riding the rails or, you know. That's the one song I would say that, um, even though we had sung, sung it many times before that, for a while it became hard for me to do that song after that. And then when Dad would come to sing a song before bed, or a couple songs, I'd ask for that one because I liked it, and he always used to sing it. And he, uh, I don't think he ever sang it again. After that? No, he said, I mean, very nicely, but he said... To you? To me, he said, I can't sing that song anymore. Huh? Did you know that? I don't remember it, but I bet you I could see that happening. I think that's what made me realize how... That there was something going on for Dad. Do you think something happened when Johnny died to Dad? Dad's, it's interesting, Dad's had, has lost people very meaningful, very meant a lot to him in his life. I mean, he's seen a lot. But this was, you know, a cousin, a childhood cousin. You know, he felt probably helpless in terms of trying to really make the difference for him. One hell of a trick diver at his grandmother Marmy's school. One hell of a yo-yo champion. One hell of a soccer player. One hell of a storyteller. One hell of a dreamer. Things just didn't quite turn out the way they were supposed to in those storybooks. Now, when I think of that song, Hobo's Lullaby, I think of it as a brief window into my dad's sadness that I didn't usually get to see. And during that funeral, Johnny's funeral, I think we got a glimpse of my dad's grief before that window was quickly shut again. A few years later, my grandma died of a stroke and that whole process began again. The death this time took several months and my dad was put in charge of caretaking. He was beside her bed when she died. And shortly after we made the discovery that she had planned her own funeral. And it turned out she not only asked for specific songs, but for specific people to sing those songs. And the day of the funeral arrived and to the surprise of everyone, except my grandma. 300 people arrived. It was huge. And it was in that, uh, which is a wonderful place to sing, the uh, Episcopal Church, great acoustics. I mean, but it was, it was a big jump from the backyard to the <laughs> Episcopal Church. And 30 to 300 to 400. Yeah. Afterwards, we repacked the minivan and barely made the reception in the backyard of my grandfather's house. 
we shook people's hands and people complimented us. After people heard me sing, they went, oh, you've got a beautiful voice. So all of a sudden everybody was asking me to sing. And I even had John Taylor, you know, the lawyer, came up to me and said, would you, at first I thought he was joking, but he said, would you please sing at my memorial? <laughs> He's still alive. I know, he's still alive. Well, that's, see, that's, that's uh, thinking way ahead. It was, but it was, wow. So everybody found out that, you know, I could sing, and they liked my voice, and I was getting requests yeah. to sing at memorials. Looking back, I can see that my grandmother's pre-planned funeral solidified the band. The expectations were set. We played when my Uncle Tom died. Wayfaring stranger. We played when my grandfather died. And a funny thing happened. The more tragedy struck, the better we got. Back down that world bank so I can away to my chest to see a river. The funerals became more elaborate and ambitious. So much so that it may be more accurate to call them concerts. And so 10 years and multiple funerals later, my Uncle Lou died of a heart attack. And my mom and I braced ourselves for this uh, concert, the concert that would follow that. My dad and Lou had known each other since college. My dad had been Lou's best man in, in his wedding. They played music together over the years. Lou was a professional pianist, and the funeral took on a musical theme. If the others were concerts, this was Woodstock. This was definitely a long ways from Johnny's backyard funeral. This was my dad's magnum opus. Lou's children got up and played music. Neighborhood kids got up. My dad sang a song. And ironically, the family funeral band was a small part of that performance. We watched most of the performance in the pews. And for the first time, we really got to see the performance from an outside perspective. And we were surprised to find that it was actually moving. It was sad at times and, and at others uplifting. The last performance was an Oscar Peterson song performed by Lou himself. It was a recording. And when Lou played, he would hum along with the melody 
um, and taken these shrill breaths that you could hear over the music. The thing that I didn't see coming was that you could hear Lou breathing on the mm -hmm, recording. Mm -hmm. I mean, that little humming he does. Which is a little eerie, but it's all, it's, it's kind of a, the last thing you expect to hear at a memorial mm -hmm. is that person breathing. Well, and I think maybe I was going a bit for the drama, but I, I really, it really, I found com a compelling way to close. It was nice to end with, you know, the person themselves. My mom cried and I started crying. We had to walk out first, uh, along with the rest of the family. And we were outside in the winter, this Boston, in the cold winter, just supporting each other and crying. And my dad was inside, arguing with the sound crew. It hit me how far apart our experiences of this moment are. I am haunted by that. My dad breaks it apart mechanically. And I wonder if somewhere along the way to becoming that funeral planner, my dad stopped grieving and just put all of himself in the show. Okay. Uh, well, I told you why why I was doing this, right? Yes, yeah, yesterday. Mm. Sort of. So, in my full awkward glory, I went to my dad to ask him about this. And just for context, Bob, who was my dad's best friend since childhood, had died around the time of this interview. It, it almost seems like a little paradoxical, but the way you approach memorials almost as like a, a storytelling art form is, and the ultimate purpose is to bring that person back to life momentarily, mm -hmm. which is kind of paradoxical because it's, it's marking the end of the person's life, but you're bringing that person back to life for a group of people. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like in performing that, that that happens for you? Do you feel like, for you, it feels as though the person comes back to life, or are you just making this Well, you know, it's people? interesting. In answer to your earlier question, it actually keeps the person alive. It doesn't bring the person back. It actually kind of keeps my friend Bob alive during that whole time from his death all the way up through that memorial. And then maybe you could call that denial, so maybe there is a little bit of denial, but, but I find, like those few times where we've delayed a memorial, like I think for... Uh, my dad, we delayed it a few months. It, it, it actually, it delayed my grieving, but it also let me collect my thoughts a little bit more. I, it's funny because kind of for me, a little like tiny microcosm of this is when 
when Lu Polina died and we were with Quan and and they got the Greg got the call that, oh, that, his, was, that was horrible. That, that was just horrible. The police had found his dad dead on the sidewalk. The, the, this moment when Quan was here getting the final word, yeah. and she was standing there. Yeah. I was getting the news as she was getting it, and that this can't be happening. She was cry, she was crying, almost wailing, uh, and but then you did the well. What I remember is that you went into logistics mode. You found them a plane. You arranged it within the hour. It felt like we were driving them to Nancy, the airport. Answer was unbelievable. The travel agent. You got them to the airport quickly. You got them a flight with the help of Nancy or because of Nancy, and then you got them on and they were gone. But I remember it's one of the few times I've seen you cry. It was once their plane took off. You disappeared actually. I couldn't didn't see where you went. And then I found you under a tree or something, kind of crying by yourself. I don't know. For me, that's kind of like a microcosm of, of the, the path. For you, yeah. you're going to help other people first, and then once that plane's taken off. That's a good point. Yeah, I can tell you, I just think about it. Yeah, it's a good point. I guess I am, I guess I do have that mode. So that's one, and that's just one reason why I like, really, that's one reason why I like helping with memorials, because it, it delays, you know, it keeps that person alive a little bit longer before I have to read for them. Yeah. So, mystery solved, right? Mm, not quite yet. Because when I went to my mom, she told me something totally different. She had a new theory based on something that had happened to her on stage recently while performing. It used to be when I did look up at people, I found someone who I found reassuring to make me feel better to get through it. But this last time I, I did My Amazing Grace and um, I started looking around at different people and I could see that they were very moved, you know? I, I could see it. Some were crying, you know, and maybe there was part of me that felt I did it right, using my own feelings to portray this song, to sing it, but also recognizing the effect my singing had. It wasn't just me now, I was actually realizing I was affecting hmm. other people with my song. So could this be it? Could this be what my dad experiences when he's on stage? Not that I doubt his explanation. I think funeral planning is about postponing the grief right up until the funeral. And then at the funeral, maybe something else happens to him. Maybe performing becomes about grief, about experiencing grief. Maybe he can feel it by being surrounded by grief, a kind of grief by proxy. All of this made sense to me. It felt right. 
But it didn't really sink in till later. My girlfriend was driving, and I put a recording of our performances into the car's CD player. And we started listening. And something unexpected happened. I started feeling proud. I watched her face, uh, hoping for tears or at least like a sniffle. And I said things like, listen to this one. Um, you can hear my uncle breathing. Listen, listen to this one. My, my cousin's on it. And that's when it hit me. My dad and I are the same. We can feel pain and sorrow, but we feel it through the performance. We feel it vicariously through the people in the audience. And so, if I should lose someone close to me, here's what you can do. Watch me play. Let the music move you. Let me watch the music move you. And then come up to me afterwards. Let me shrug in modesty, crack a joke. Let me pretend I don't care. But let me think secretly. Yes, I'm the son of a funeral planner. Yes, I play in the family funeral band. And yes, we'd love to play at your funeral. Just turn me loose, let me All the songs in this piece were recordings of the family band, recorded by my dad, Ted Rhodes. In addition to being a community organizer, my dad currently has a band that is not made up of his family. They do not play funerals, but you could always ask. Contact them at their Facebook page, again, the Americana Cats. Special thanks to Ashley and Craig Baum, Rachel Rhodes, and Shoshana Walter, my girlfriend, for their feedback on this piece. Also, of course, special thanks to my parents for participating. Thank you, guys. And uh, just to let you guys know, this podcast is produced by me, which means things happen slowly. The next episode will come out in about three months. Go to iTunes, subscribe, give me a good review. Or don't, because you don't know me well enough yet. If that's how it is, I understand I wouldn't do it. But 
If you're a better person than me, you should totally do that. And check back in in three months for our next episode. I said our because it sounds more professional, but it's just me. So, I meant me. See you soon.